Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Good afternoon, Rick Bookstaber. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. It's uh, a pleasure to have you on the Business Jiu-Jitsu Podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, it's sort of nice to, to know it exists. Uh, thanks for having me on. Well, I started this podcast um, because I was at a point in my life where I'd been practicing, at the time I'd been practicing jujitsu for about 11 years. Um, and it was really like my secret identity. Uh-huh. You know, I did, I did this thing every single day for more than a decade. I had my teammates. I had people I competed against. I traveled around the world for business and everywhere I would go, I would just drop into an academy and do some training, but I never brought jujitsu into my life. You know, my, my friends and my family would say, you still doing that karate thing? Uh (laughs) And so I decided that jujitsu had been so impactful for me in my life and my business. And oftentimes when I would suffer some business problem and I'd be agonizing over it, my sensei would, Nardu Debra, you might know him from uh, Henzo's. He, uh, he would be lecturing us at the end of the class on some philosophy or some ancient wisdom, some, Sun Tzu strategy, and instantly it would click in my head some business problem I was trying to get at. And so I decided to write a book about it, Business Jiu-Jitsu. And so it's going to be coming out soon. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Well, let me give uh, the audience a little bit of a background on who you are and how this podcast came to be. So I saw this post. I'm going to share my screen for a second. Okay. I saw this post on the internet. Uh-huh. And it says, uh, it's from the Henzo Gracie Chronicles. It says, Brian Glick, Rick Bookstaber, and John Danaher. If you read to the last chapter of my book, A Demon of Our Own Design, then you know that I like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I have just passed the 15-year mark of studying at the Henzo Gracie Academy in New York. During that time, I have seen the academy grow from 20 or so students, most all beginners, to a thriving center with hundreds of students and a dozen world-class instructors, most of whom started their careers with Henzo, and began studying jiu-jitsu well after I did. I have had the opportunity to study with several of them, linked here to their respective academies, Sean Williams, Brian Glick, and the uh, admittable John Donahar. Though through the combined limits of age, talent, and time, my development has followed what might be charitably called a slow trajectory. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, this was the impetus of of me reaching out, Rick, and um, I'm really grateful for you to be here. Well, thanks. So uh, before I give a little introduction on, on your career history, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. So uh, in terms of uh, business, I, I've spent my uh, life in finance. Uh, and uh, the specific area of finance is what's called risk management. Uh, so I've worked at various banks and hedge funds, uh, also worked at the Treasury, uh, trying to help find ways to keep people from falling off a cliff, basically. So the the objective that I have is not so much trying to help people make money, but trying to help uh, people from crashing and burning by not taking risks that they didn't realize they might be taking. And, you know, most of the time when you take a risk, nothing happens. Uh, But of course, there's always that one time it does. And so the the job is really trying to look out for... uh, possible problems that could occur. 
so I and I now have my own company, a, a startup that focuses on providing risk management applications, technology for financial advisors uh, and wealth managers. Um, yeah, on this the, is Fabric? Yeah, so this is uh, what's called Fabric. Um, it's uh, actually headquartered in uh, Boulder, Colorado. I live in New York City. I'm one of the co-founders, and there I am. <laughs> and uh, so that's really where my business focus is. Uh, then uh, really, if I'm going to describe what I do, it's uh, my business work, uh, writing. I do some writing. I just had an article come out uh, in the Financial Times. One will be out in a day or two in New York Times. Sure. And uh, that's kind of related to you know my, my field. And then there's Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And I do a few other things on the side. I sit around, watch TV and whatnot, but <laughs> those are really my activities. Yeah, um, oh, yeah that's, we, that's yeah, This is the Financial, Financial Times article. Um, some people will be watching this on YouTube and others will be listening on uh, Spotify and anybody listening along, I'll make sure to, to link to uh, Rick's. Yeah, and, and actually if you, if people like podcasts, if they go uh, to the resources page, there's a, a bunch of different podcasts I've done that are, you know, germane to the field. Yeah. Well, what a phenomenal background and a pleasure to talk to you. Um, I, I, I followed a, your path of your career on LinkedIn, and it looks like you were at Solomon Brothers in the wake of the 91 scandal. Uh, you were at Bridgewater with Ray Dalio leading into the financial crisis. That yeah. led you to work in the Obama administration the, as a Department of Finance. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, US Treasury and, the SC, and the SEC. And um, it's a, a remarkable career. And uh, congratulations and, and on your new company, too. Yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm, I have so many questions. I, I honestly, I don't know if this ever happened to me, but I don't even know where to begin. So many of those <laughs> the stories of these companies that you've been at have been formative in my life. Uh, in Warren Buffett's book, um, he talks in great detail about the, 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 the banking scandal that happened in Solomon Brothers in 1991 and their handling of it. And that was such an influence on me in my life about any time I encounter a problem to just come out and get in front of it and say, this is what happened and take action, never try to put anything in the gray, never try to cover anything up, never try to lie, just say it happened and deal with it. And, and that story has stuck out to me. So it's such an important, you know, learning lesson. Yeah. Well, really, if you're in uh, trading in a professional environment, a hedge fund or a bank, it's kind of a, a given. If something's going the wrong way, you let everybody know it's going the wrong way. If you've just lost a huge amount of money because of some stupid mistake, you let everybody know, I just lost a lot of money because of this stupid mistake. And people work to figure it out. Nobody's saying, really, how the hell could you have done that? It's like, let's figure this thing out. And of course, once it's all figured out, then you have time for a postmortem. Uh, your job might be on the line, but that's the way things go. You sort of know that. Uh, the time problems occur is when, oh my gosh, I made a mistake. They might fire me. 
I don't want to look stupid. I can work this thing out. Maybe if I double down, something happening. And that's where the big problems occur. So of, of the various businesses out there, I would say that the trading business is the one that's most open to let's figure this thing out as opposed to recriminations when a problem occurs. Yeah. If my parents were on this podcast with us right now, they would tell you that I'm not an inherently risky person, that I didn't inherently like taking risk as a child. As a matter of fact, my best friend who's born four days apart from me, Gavin Crescenzo, they all used to say he would walk right up to the edge of the pool and I would walk two feet back. And I think that characterized our friendship through my whole life, skiing, playing sports, getting jobs, doing deals, everything. You know, I always yeah. kind of leaned on the side of conservatism while he was always kind of swinging for the fences. Uh -huh. And <clears throat> I'm wondering, you know, what made you interested in risk? You know, was this, was something, was risk something that you always agonized over as a young person? Uh, so I, I guess part of it's being sort of more glass half empty than glass half full. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking this can't be right. This will never work out. What's the problem with this? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not so much being risk averse. Uh, I don't think that people who are very strong in traders, investors necessarily are risk taking. They aren't necessarily people who are going, you know, paragliding and so on. Uh, but they, they're, you know, intelligent and focused on uh, opportunity versus risk on the aggressive side, on the offensive side. I tend to be looking at more on the defensive side. Uh, so I tend to be pretty risk averse, but you can be a very good person in terms of risk management without being risk averse. In fact, there have been times where I've looked and said, I don't get it. You know, the risk here is really low, even though we're down. Uh, There's a case during the LTCM crisis in 1998 where a big hedge fund blew up Lost and risk. some securities were totally mispriced because of it, because they're forced to sell positions. And at the time, Solomon on the Treasury desk was down $100 million. And I proposed, I said, you know, this doesn't make sense. We should be moving more aggressively into this trade. So, so just because you've lost money, just because there is risk, doesn't mean that you don't possibly take action uh, further, but you're doing it with your eyes open. Right. Um, so maybe before I kind of press you a little bit on, on jujitsu and risk, maybe you could just how did how do you find yourself from being a risk adverse person and someone who characterizes themselves as finding things wrong to walking into Henzo Gracie Academy in your first time? I was I've always been interested in you could say martial arts, but more broadly, sort of contact sports. Um, and uh, when I was in Korea when I was nineteen twenty, and I studied what's called hapkido, which is their martial art. Uh, I did Tai Chi, you know, so I did these different things. And uh, my Tai Chi instructor said, you know, you should learn something about grappling. Mm. You, you know, this is part of what you need to know. And uh, he mentioned jujitsu. And it just happened that was around 95 or 96, which is when, you know, the UFC was starting, the Gracie brothers were coming 
in or the Grace family generally was coming. And somehow I found out that Henzo had just started his academy. And so I said, oh, this is really cool. Let me go there. This was 1996. Wow. Uh, and uh, it was on the fifth floor of a walk-up building on 25th Street. Uh, everybody was a white belt. Henzo was the one teaching. And that's where I started. Uh, and it's been sort of a fun time, a little bit of a frustrating time in a way, because, you know, then Brian Glick comes, John Donaher comes, you know, pick whoever, and they're just going like this, yeah. you know, and I'm sort of going along. But I've, you know, seen things from the start. Did you notice uh, yesterday John Danaher put up a great post on aging gracefully in jiu-jitsu and leaning into your attributes as you age? Did, did you catch that? No, I missed that. Oh, did John Danaher put up a great post on it? And even though I, I still have, I'm still, you know, young uh, in years, um, I've been doing jujitsu now for 14 years and my body is beginning to break. Ligaments begin to, are, are falling apart one by one, LCLs, PCLs, elbow, shoulders. Oh, wow. It's becoming more and more difficult to train and, you know, things, attributes that I had, quickness, speed, strength, they're, they're eluding me. So I'm totally trying yeah. to reinvent how I practice jujitsu now, which yeah. is a, a challenge. So what, so to, where, where are you on your, 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 your jujitsu journey today? Uh, so, um, you know, I, I'm a black belt, uh, but I'm a 72 year old black belt. <laughs> so, so how I approach jujitsu and we could get into this cause I think it may be interesting for people is different from how you do. Although it sounds like you're kind of trending towards my approach. Uh, but I, I train twice a week, uh, in jujitsu. I, uh, uh, then I do uh, personal training once a week to help uh, in a lot of times deal with things that are problematic uh, so they don't kind of cascade to be very difficult. Um, and I just started doing uh, Muay Thai uh, also, wow. ideally twice a week, but uh, I don't know if I can pull all of that off. I, I did, for a while I did boxing at Kingsway Gym uh, which I don't think is around anymore. Mm -hmm. And then I did uh, Muay Thai and found it too uh, difficult because if you're punching hard, uh, you know, you, you transmit a lot of force down your wrist. And as you get older, the kind of the cartilage there is not quite as absorbent. Uh, but now I said, okay, fine. I'm just going to tape well and not try to hit as hard as I can. And uh, I'm getting into it. Um, so that's kind of, uh, and, and, and to the point, you know, you're saying you do it every day. I do it twice a week and I've done it twice a week for years. And the reason is if I try to do it three times a week, my body catches up with me. Uh, you know, I, I realize I need this amount of time to recover, to get back where I am and everything's fine. So uh, it's kind of, I think for me, the key issue is respecting my body knowing yeah. what I can do and not pretend that I'm like 35 years old. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, my sensei will often say that jujitsu is a jealous mistress. And if you don't treat her well, she will leave you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's, you, the skills become perishable, especially if, if you're not cross training and, and, and really focusing on your development. Have you ever come across sensei Nardu in the gym? Is that a, a name that you're familiar with? 
No. Yeah, I'm sure you would recognize his face because he's been around the academy since all the way back then. He's wow. a black man, Henzo and, and John. Yeah. You know, it could be just I, – I usually train like 10 o'clock, 11 in the morning. Yeah. And so there's probably a whole set of people that I never see because they're not around them. Yeah. So let me bring this back a little bit. You know, we, we emailed back and forth a few times and I said, hey, I'm – you know, writing a book or do, recording a podcast about the shared principles of business and jujitsu. And you said that those weren't, that's not how you saw it. So I was interested. Um, what was your take on that? You know, where do you see jujitsu in your life and, you know, the principles that govern, you know, your life and business? Yeah. So it's uh, really, it's like I have two lives um, and they don't really intersect. Uh I think people in my business, some of them know and respect the fact that I'm, in fact, it's kind of cool to say, oh, he's a black belt in jujitsu, you know, kind of <laughs> different. It sort of differentiates you. Um, but I don't, I, I don't take lessons from jujitsu and I don't see how I apply them in my work. Uh, I really feel like when I'm in jujitsu, you know, with the guys at the academy, it's like, that's me. That's me in a particular way. That is who I am. That's my personality. Hmm. But when I'm at work, working with people, I'm in a quantitative field. So other people, maybe they have degrees in physics or something. That's me. Hmm. And that's being kind of an intellectual setting. Uh, you know, so there, so there are different things. And I, I don't get a lot of... Uh, sort of interplay between the two. I'll, let me tell you a little story. Um, I had John Donahar on the podcast and the first time I ever took uh, a class under him many years ago, he told a story about being backstage at a boxing match and seeing, or backstage at a UFC event and seeing Roy Jones Jr. and asking him questions. And Roy Jones Jr. said to him, when is the most, when are you in the most danger? And he, he answered his own question and he said, when you're on the attack, see, when, when you're on the attack, when you're throwing a punch, you're actually opening yourself up yeah. to the most amount of damage because you are opening yourself up to be counterattacked. And he, first of all, I think that John is one of the most clear communicators I've ever studied under in any discipline. Um, but the way that he described that to me really helped open up uh, a part of my jujitsu. It was like came to me at the perfect time when I needed to hear it. I think at the time I was a purple belt and needed to, I needed to open up my game. I needed to take more risks. I needed to uh, begin to attack more, get on the attack, not play so defensively. And I brought that lesson with me also directly into, into my business life um, to start opening myself up to try to do more deals um, John is also well known for saying that you take a lot less risk when you've worked on your defense so much to the point where you're, you know, you can escape anything that they can do to you. Yeah. Yeah. And so the combination of these two, uh, principles of risk really helped me like jujitsu helped me so much in deal-making because I am not a natural risk taker. But when I realized that I had been sharpening my skills throughout my career enough so that, wait, I know how to do this. You know, I'm in the commercial real estate business. I, I do commercial real estate deals and I, I'm in the fashion business. I own uh, 
15 women's clothing stores and a website. And so opening up stores is one of the most profitable aspects of my business and buying buildings is one of the most profitable uh-huh. aspects of my business. But to do that, you could find every reason not to do any deal. And so I just, I'm interested on in your take on this because I feel like you are a risk expert and I listen to some of your podcasts on the subject and I feel like you are an endless, um, you know, endless well of, of, of information about on the subject of risk. Yeah. Um, well, for me, the, the risk management with jujitsu is not so much in the, on the mat as in how I approach it as uh, in general. I mean, I think the real risk management issue, you know, there, there is one principle in finance and markets where uh, if, if you lose 50% to get back to where you were, you have to make a hundred percent. Right. So, so when you get hurt, when you lose, uh, the way crawling back up is not just immediately the same thing in reverse. And I, the, the one thing that I am really conscious of is uh, the risk of injury. Uh, if if you do something stupid or overextend yourself and you get injured, it's not like, oh, I've lost that time. Let me get back into it. You're down and now you have to work your way back up and you've lost that period of time You've lost that time where you could have been improving and instead you've been flat. So the place where I look at risk with regard to uh, jujitsu is managing how I approach it uh, to keep uh, low the risk of injury. And uh, What are and some that, of the universal truths around avoiding injury? How, how have you been able to do that? Uh, I guess by having... Well, first of all, as I mentioned, by realizing that I don't care what I feel like and how I think I'm in such great shape. The fact is, if you're 72, you can't do certain things and you're stupid if you do. Uh, So like I won't do inversions. In fact, uh, I was doing sort of semi-inversions just as a drill uh, last Monday and got her to where I haven't been able to train and it will get back on the mat on Wednesday. So it's sort of saying, what can you do? What can't you do? It's sort of saying, I know I'm stuck. I'm just going to tap. Yeah. Right. As opposed to I can get out of this or something. And uh, it's saying, you know, I'm something's bothering me. I'm not going to push it today because whatever that thing is could just get worse and worse. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's also just this maturity. Uh, it, if when you're young, the objective people have is I want to be a black belt and it's, I want to win. I want to beat people and I'm going to, you know, go to the academy every day. But after a point, I I think the, I, I wouldn't say the mature thing, but it is kind of the mature thing to do is say, you know what? I want to be doing this when I'm 50 and 60 and 70. Mm. And if I'm going to be doing it, 5, 10, 20, 30 years in the future, now I can chart my path realizing that that's where things are going to go. And and that'll change my attitude. You know, I have a lot of time to learn and to develop. I have a lot of time to preserve my body so that I can enjoy it. And one of the wonderful things about jujitsu 
is you can do it as long as your your body's not uh, you know obviously you have to be fit, but if you're fit, you can do it and you can do it really well throughout your life. What kind of techniques do you favor? at this point in your life. And I'll just qualify that statement by saying one of the things John was talking about is that you lose flexibility, you lose strength and you lose speed, but what you gain, what you lose, you gain with your understanding of the game and your grip strength. So how's your grip strength? Yeah. Well, that's the a key thing. I, you know, I actually did privates with John for like eight years and it was no gi. And I, uh, and it didn't do it for me because you have to be flexible and athletic and quick and everything for it. The wonderful thing about gi is that you can control what's going on to a large extent. And it is technical because, you know, subtleties of what you're doing with the, the gi can help keep the person from uh, using their speed and so on. Um, I, my, the best part of my game is uh, if, I'm on the top, uh, you know, I can be stable and I can give con have good control uh, and balance. Um, the weakest part for me is if I'm trying to defend uh, with open guard because and unless I have good grips, uh, you know, I cannot, I'm, I can't react as quickly as the person going around me. So we spend a lot of time in my lessons uh, like a lot of time trying to improve my open guard game. Uh, and, and I just realized that's kind of inevitably a weakness. I think speed is more important if you're trying to fend open guard because the person can, you know, move, maybe move faster than you can. He's got all this range and flexibility is critically important. Um, you know, as you probably know, if you're uh, rolling with a woman uh, it's almost impossible to get past some of their guards because their legs and their hips can go all over the place. Mm. Uh, if you can only move your legs this far, uh, it's pretty easy to get around them. So uh, that's the most challenging part of my game. Yeah. So, so as we're discussing this, you know, these parts of our game and I'm dealing with the same thing, I'm, I'm reminded of another business principle and we're living in it and you brought it up. You just recently, as of I think yesterday, published this article. I, I just shared it again, and I'll, I'll share it on my screen for a moment for those uh, reading along. And it's, you do a quick rundown through Silicon Valley Bank's risk management snafus. And um, you begin to talk about, you know, some of, some of the areas of which they uh, didn't mitigate their risks and found themselves in the current situation that they're in. Um I often talk about in my business, these single points of failure, you know, where are the biggest risks in my business? I'll, you know, one I spoke about in my executive meeting this morning was we're solely and wholly reliant on one uh, supplies vendor, a critical supply. If they burned if their factory burned down tomorrow in Los Angeles, we would effectively be out of business for months and it could potentially oh. the entire business. And so this single point of failure is, catastrophic. I, I, I've been on my buying team to change it, find new ones. I said, we need at least three to five. And I painted yeah. a picture and I said, many of these banks, many of these companies in Silicon Valley, SVB was their only bank for payroll, for paying their mortgage, uh -huh. for paying the, every, you know, their vendors. At my company, we have five banks. 
You know, we have three different uh, revolving lines of credit. We have term loans. We have different uh, deposit relationships. Our, yeah. our cash is spread out. So in that sense, we were fine. But in other areas of my business, we were yeah. we were not. So I'm, I would love your take. We don't typically talk too many current events on this podcast, but I do think it's a really interesting moment in time. And you've written about it. So where, where's your head at on this? Yeah, so with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, I, I'm no expert on banking. Although I was working in the U.S. Treasury after the 2008 crisis, so was pretty familiar with the problems that could occur with banks. Silicon Valley Bank uh, is kind of a case study in things not to do. Uh, you know, to your point, you don't want to. Well, first of all, you don't want to be in an area that's super high risk, which they were, mm. because a lot of their clients were technology and startups, and they're very risky. You don't want to lack diversification. You don't want to have, you know, all your eggs in one basket, whether it's one supplier or uh, one type of client, because if there's problems with technology startups and all you have is client or technology startups, you've got a problem. Uh, you don't want to be sitting there taking huge amounts of interest rate risk, uh, which they were doing. So you can kind of go down the list and one by one, they were having these problems. And then one of the problems they had is if you're an almost $250 billion balance sheet bank, you probably want to have a professional to focus on your risk management. Well, they didn't do that. Wow. They had a, a, a head of risk management that they got rid of in April of last year. And so now they had all these problems. Maybe the problems were there because they didn't even bother to get somebody to oversee these issues. Um, so, uh, you, you, so basically the article goes through these one by one, but the basic point is nobody should be surprised, uh, you know, that they, they failed. It could be that they didn't fail, but that given that they have, and you look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, yeah, of course, you know, look at all the things they're doing wrong. And one thing that I mentioned this article at the start of it is after the fact, when you look back for almost any failure of a bank or a hedge fund, you can pretty much explain what they did wrong and what happened in like five sentences. It doesn't matter how opaque and how complex the problem seemed beforehand. Afterwards, it's never that hard. You know, it's not like this is, uh, rocket science, but people don't recognize it ahead of time or don't put one and one together. Yeah. Although in, in this case, I guess there was a, a number of people that did see this coming. They did understand interest rate risk. They did understand that they had made a bet on commercial mortgage-backed securities. And I think they were a 10 year and there was an inverted, inverted yield curve and a run on the bank. And so it, it like you said in hindsight it seems like wow like of course yeah. that was a mistake and of course maybe you know backing all of this venture debt and creating liquidity for companies that aren't profitable and only survive off of uh you know their next round yeah, seems right. really irresponsible possibly um but it's just again i can't not think of jujitsu when these things happen because uh you know in my own in my own practice of jujitsu, these like these lessons are omnipresent. And 
you know, the one thing I've been struggling with uh, over the since my injury, I, you know, I tore apart my knee last May, and I've been in PT and I have been oh, nursing. Wow. And I, I keep re-injuring, you know, I, I fully came back after physical therapy, 12 weeks. Um, but what happens is, is you actually mentioned what happened to me. I go a little too hard. I get, let someone get a bad position on my knee. I should have tapped a few seconds earlier, but I wanted to try to work out of it because I used to be able to do that. Uh And then my knees being torn apart by a a huge gorilla because I, I didn't, I didn't think the way that you're telling me to think, yeah, you know, yeah. I'm learning, I'm learning something yeah. hard way. Wow. Yeah. That's actually, you know, two things I would recommend, uh, you know, for those who are listening, who are deciding they're uh, pick the, the number 45 years old, 55 or something, pick your training partners, you know, be willing to say no. If you're looking at some guy who seems too aggressive or whatever and do private lessons, Mm. Um, you know, privates and, uh, I'm, I don't mean, I end up with few bad habits because if I do something dumb, I know about it right away. And, uh, you know, I'm with a professor who understands my limitations and doesn't push my arm beyond its, uh, natural range of motion and so on. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think just going out randomly on the mat with, who, whomever, you know, when you're older and that person may not understand the concept that, you know, they're not supposed to go totally hard, you know, if like, you know, if you're, if you're like, I'm 155, if you're 155 and you're up against somebody who's 185, there's already that gap. Yep. If you're 20 years older, there's another gap. And actually, there's a, a video I saw of one of the, somebody in the Gracie family who sort of had a notion of handicapping by belts. And he said, each 20 pounds is a belt equivalent, and each 10 years is a belt equivalent. Hmm. So if you're uh, on the mat and you're a brown belt, and you're 20 years older than this guy who's a purple belt, you guys are actually the same belt. Interesting. And if, uh, you know, so so I, I think that sort of mentality is useful, uh, you know, speaking of kind of the reducing the risk of injury. Yeah. Um, Another topic I wonder if you have any uh, if you want to weigh in on is leverage as it relates to risk. Uh, is that something that you focus on in your practice? Yeah. So probably the most important thing in markets, if you're looking at risk, the the thing that is the most immediate guaranteed way to crash and burn if things go wrong is to have too much leverage. And what what leverage means for people who don't know the term is, let's say I have, I'm going to talk not in terms of individuals, but in terms of, say, a hedge fund or a business. Let's say I have $100 million of capital, and I decide I'm going to just put it in equities. Fine. If the equity market drops 10%, I'm down 10%. If it drops 50%, I'm down 50%, whatever. But now let's say I say, you know, I really want to, if I just hold $100 in equities, 
if I put it all in equities. Maybe if I'm right, I'll make 10%, 15%. I want to make uh, you know, 20%, 30%. So I'm going to borrow $100 million and buy $200 million of equity using the $100 million I have as collateral. Well, now what happens? If the market goes down 10%, I'm down 20. If the market goes down 50, I'm down 100. I'm gone mm -hmm. uh, because I only had 100 million to start with. My 200 million is now down that 100 million. Uh, but it's worse than that because if the market goes down 10%, that person who lent me the 100 million dollars is going to say, hey, you know, I lent you 100 million, but that's when we, you had 100 million yourself. Now you only have 90 million. So actually, I'm only going to be willing to lend you 180 million in this situation. So you need to cut me a check for $20 million. Well, where do I get that $20 million? I get it by selling some of my position. Well, if I sell my position and a lot of other lever people are in the same situation, they sell their position, the market's going to drop. And so I sit around and so I'm, I'm down 20%. I sell and suddenly the bank says, hey, you know that 20 million you gave me back because the market was down 20%? Well, now because you had to sell to give me that 20 million, the market's down another 20 now you have to give me more, so you have to sell more, and you get this cascade. And most really violent sorts of drops in the markets occur because of that problem with leverage. Uh, people sort of chasing their tail, having a cascade. Uh, and so I, I think uh, the you know the biggest issue is knowing how much you can add leverage to position, and understanding the amount of liquidity that's available for you because in that situation what will happen is you have to sell and the markets that you were going to sell and suddenly you can't sell because everybody else is selling and nobody wants to buy because the market just went down five percent then ten percent then twenty percent everybody just saying oh i'm not getting into this and uh you know you can't get out of the positions and if you're a hedge fund you could end up out of business because of it Oh, real fast. Hedge fund, real estate owner, uh, investment banker. I mean, it's just amazing. And we're seeing it right now in real time in a way that I think we haven't really seen it since 08, which is when I began my career. Um, and I was buying multifamily apartment buildings in Manhattan. And uh, it was it was bloody, you know, blood in the streets. And it was just it was so there was so much fear at that time. Yeah. Well, 2008 was. I was at Bridgewater, which is a big hedge fund at the time. And Bridgewater hires a lot of people pretty much fresh out of college. And we were in this like apocal period, you know, 2007, 2008. And I was just thinking for these kids who were there, it's like, hey, guys, this isn't normal. What you're experiencing right now in your first two years in the industry is something that I hadn't experienced in my 30 or 40 years. And you may wow. hopefully never experience again, you know, this world totally blowing apart. Yeah, it was, uh, those were crazy times. Did you work uh, directly with Ray Dalio? Yeah, yeah. I was, was in that, my office next to his. What um, kind of experience was that? I mean, in the years of that, you know, he was very uh, prominent in, um, during that time in the financial markets and well-known, but I think 
through writing his book Principles and coming out into this next chapter and phase of his life, he's become a lot more of a media personality. He wrote yeah. the book The Changing World Order, which has been, you know, very impactful for a lot of people. What what was it like working elbow to elbow yeah. with Ray Dalio? Yeah. So this was before he published Principles. Uh he's a real, really an iconoclastic sort of a uh guy. Um, you know, he has a very unusual philosophy that is uh, really pushed out there. Um, he looks at the markets in a way a lot of people didn't. Uh, and, uh, you know, he just has a, a really unusual personality. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how Bridgewater does when he's, you know, I don't know what, what you exactly say in theory, he's now sort of emeritus in the firm. I don't know if that really would be true, yeah. uh, but but you know, Bridgewater. When I was Just ask Bob Iger, huh? I said, ask Bob Iger if, if that's uh, you know, Bob Iger from at Disney. Yeah. He was he became the chairman, and that didn't last very long. He's back to being yeah. the CEO. Well, he does. Yeah, it's hard to work there at a senior level. I was only there for a little over a year, uh, because you have to have just the right personality and everything. But, um, but. When I was there, it had about 250, 300 people. Now it has well over a thousand. But operationally, if you looked at when I was there, how things ran, basically it could have been run with 50 people because he was so at the center of the key decision-making and his decisions, uh, you know, it wasn't like looking at 50 million pieces of data. Um, so it really is going to be a little bit of a different firm now than what it was when he was sort of in the middle of the decision-making of the, of the investments and so on. Well, it's an interesting way to uh, begin to wrap up our conversation because that's another way of looking at leverage and, and one that's very impactful in my career, which is leveraging the talents of your team and getting as many decisions out of your own head as possible and creating really good uh, processes and procedures and <coughs> controls in order to do that. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think about that a lot. I think about the beginning of my career. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I opened up a new office. This was around 2013 or 14. And before we moved in, the night before, I lined up everybody's desk chairs. I put a small plant on their desk. I put a little magazine holder and I got their desks all ready and at the end of the first day, I walked back in and everyone had left. And of course, it was the, like a bomb went off. Every chair was pushed out. There were papers all over. I hadn't clearly communicated my expectations on how to leave an office. And so what did I do? I, I went and I pushed everybody's chair back in. I took out the garbage. I, I put the, pot, the papers neatly together and I, 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 I rearranged the plant back into its spot. And uh, the next day, they came in. I didn't say anything. I said, they, of course, they're going to see what I did. They're going to see that this place is clean and they're going to know that they should clean up after themselves. And of course, the place is a bomb again. And so I pulled the one of the, the head girls into my office and said, don't you know you're supposed to clean? I started you know, getting very exasperated. And of course, she started hysterically crying in my office. No one's ever spoken to me like yeah. this. <laughs> and so I learned very, very quickly. I, it immediately became clear to me, I can't treat people like this. I can't yell at them. I knew it was my fault. And uh, I said, I need to figure out how to manage. And I started just reading like crazy, the one minute manager and seven habits of highly effective people and how to win friends oh. and people, you know, just became obsessed with, with reading all these books. And 
And, and I figured out how to leverage a team, you know, and how to build a team and how to get all these decisions out of my own head. I try to make as few decisions in my businesses as I possibly can, only mm -hmm. the highest level decisions that I need. So that's a, it, I just, I love hearing your perspective on, on leverage and, and, you know, your time at, at these firms. Maybe before we, uh, we, we wrap up, you could tell about the next chapter of your life after you left Bridgewater and you went to work under the Obama administration on the heels of the financial crisis. I mean, that, yeah. An incredible ride those those years. How many years were you there? Uh, well, I thought I'd just be there for two. I ended up being there for six. Wow. <laughs> so, um, what happened is I was asked to testify in the early part of the financial crisis a, a bunch of times, like five different times, on swaps, uh, hedge fund issues, all these things, and then I was asked to to come down to work uh, in the SEC and Treasury to kind of try to reformulate the structure that would be used for the financial system to avoid future crises. Um, and that was really a, a really fulfilling time for me um, because I was in what would be called a technocratic role. I was not kind of in the answerable to the political. Uh, I didn't have to worry about political things. I just had to get things done. And I worked with uh, I would say kids who are like late late twenties to mid thirties who are very smart, super idealistic. Were only there because they want to get something. It's not like they had a career there. It was like they're going to be there for two years, three years, <coughs> do what they can do. So there's this idea of just getting things done, working in a team where there wasn't a jockeying for most people of position or you know getting ahead. And, and it really was a, a wonderful period of time because of that. Um, and the one thing that I learned there is that got me moving in the direction that I have moved since is all the discussion was about banks, which of course made sense because banks were at the center of things. But the issues were occurring because of people <coughs> or were occurring to people. So the single mother who was losing her house in Des Moines you know, that, that's where the pain was being felt. And if you look at all the books that were written and everything from 2008, nobody talks about the individuals, except actually one place does. Yeah. And that was uh, The Big Short. Big Short, yeah. Yeah, if you look at the movie, the last scene pretty much of The Big Short is a man getting out of his van, filled furniture filling the back of it, hugging his wife, while his two children sort of peek out the back of the van and they're at like a mini mart. And he's sort of looking just out into space, you know, with, so here's somebody who's lost everything, trying to find a life for him and his family. That's the crisis. And nobody thought about it in those terms. And so I've moved away from hedge funds and banks and so on to working with uh, financial advisors and wealth managers because they're the ones who can touch the individuals who ultimately are the ones who will either benefit from the markets or be hurt by crises. Uh, I think that group really has not been served well yeah. over the course of time by economists and the financial community. Yeah. And uh, that's really so fabric. The company that I yeah. started is focused on that. And, and I'll say that you have a, is this a podcast? I mean, there's a series of, great resources on here to learn oh, yeah. all about risk and finance. And, and here's one on liquidity. Um, 
And so you've put out a lot of really great oh, content. Yeah. You've written extensively. Uh, so, so that's available on your website. And then you right. also wrote a book. We, we only connected yesterday, so I haven't had a, <laughs> a chance to read it just yet, but I will because I, I love to read. Uh, yeah. Here is the link to your book. Let me pull up here. This here. Do, 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 do. Um, yeah, there's actually two. There's uh, one I wrote pre-2008 called A Demon of Our Own Design. And then there's one I wrote in, in 2017. Yeah, so that's the first one, uh -huh. uh, A Demon of Our Own Design. And then up on the top left is the more recent one called The End of Theory, uh, and uh, which talks about how basically economics can't pull it off in dealing with financial crises and what you have to do instead. It's, uh, it has kind of a philosophical tone to it. It's, it's not a how to do it book. You know, I think it's a, it's a thoughtful book that is, uh, well, you know, it's my books, of course, I think, you know, it's a, it's a thoughtful book, but, uh, it, really, I think, highlights some of the problems. If you're wondering why in the world do we lurch from one crisis to the next, it's because there's something wrong with the underpinnings of how economics is looking at the world. Right. And uh, this goes through what's wrong with economics and what's a good alternative to deal with things in a better way. Uh, the first book, A Demon of Our Own Design, is a little bit like uh, my autobiographical walk down Wall Street. It's kind of lessons yeah. I've learned from my time. And it's interesting, it really foresage, it really suggests that we're about to have a crisis. In fact, the first uh, paragraph of the book says, uh, you know, we've had all these crises and it's about to happen again because wow. things are so leveraged, things are so complex. So, yeah. So if you like, if you're interested in finance as sort of a student of finance, I think both those books are good ones. I am. And I just, uh, as we were, as you were talking through it, I just hit check out on Amazon and I will, I'll share my thoughts when I've, when I've gotten through them. And, uh, and I, and I, we haven't spoken about this, but those are my feelings as well. It seems like we're in a we're in a battle more of checkers than chess, where the the pendulum is keeps swinging harder and yeah. harder in each direction. Uh, more leverage, printing more money, raising interest rates higher. I think you know if you bring this thing back down to first principles and you think about what needs to be done, you need to uh, have a little bit more financial conservatism, tighten the belt loops, stop printing, yeah. stop over levering. Yeah. Think back to the individual individual responsibility. That's uh, right starting straight at the community level, uh, making good and decisions. And that's actually, if, you know, if I'm going to sort of cap things back to jujitsu, it's, you know, when, well, John Donahurst said there's 15 basic ways of uh, submission. And he was having me go through them. You know, there's triangle, there's, uh, you know, arm bar, there's this and that. And I was going through and I got up to 14 different ones. So I was pretty good at, at you know, kind of looking at the world the way he did. And I said, you know, I don't get it. What's 15 said exhaustion. Mm. 
that essentially you just the guy runs out of steam and uh, you know you've exhausted him and then of course he doesn't tap from exhaustion but basically that ended it because he's open for a submission and how do we keep from being exhausted it's not just being in super good shape i mean i'm in decent shape but i'm not like you know elite but i can go seven or eight six minute rounds and the reason i can do it is i know what to relax and i know when i can relax and I know when to go hard, and I know when to just sort of, you know, go with the waves. So, th so it's really the economy kind of has to learn that lesson. Yeah. That there are times where you can just sort of breathe. Uh, but as you're saying, there's something about the nature of our system where it has it goes all the way one way, it goes all the way the other, and it never can just say, "Hey, chill," you know, we can move <laughs> along here, everything's fine. No. No, if things are fine, I've got to lever and lever and lever up. And if things aren't fine, I've got to kind of liquidate it. You know, I don't know how we get to that point or if we can. I think our basic economic system makes it hard to do because it's competitive and, you know, the best guy wins. Yeah. But, you know, but that is one lesson, I think, uh, that you could take from jujitsu into the economy, which is, you know, sometimes pick your time, don't get exhausted, know when you can chill and when you take, you know, action. Well said. And I think we'll end right there. Uh, looks like we were able to have a productive business jujitsu conversation <laughs> of which uh, I think I've made you a believer or at least extracted it out of you the best that I could. <laughs> and I'm really glad that, glad that we did. I, I, I hope that we'll, uh, We'll stay in touch, and I'd love to have yeah. you back on the on the podcast again. Maybe you could become one of our resident experts on uh, the state of the economy and risk. And I'm positive that you've had a, a really great impact on a lot of young people. That we have a lot of young people that listen to this, entrepreneurs and business people of all kind. And um, it's it's really great to hear your perspective. So so thank you so much for being a part of this project. Well, yeah, thanks for having me on. It's good to talk with you. Yeah. So let me share uh, where everyone can find you and I'll read it off. So first and foremost, your website uh, is here. Okay. Just give me a moment. It is uh, fabricrisk.com. Uh, this is where you, there's a, a number of resources available, podcasts and, and, and great information on the economy, on risk, on, 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 in, on information. I think that it's great for all business people to check out. Then you can find Rick's books here on Amazon. I've shared them. Um, the first book is called um, A Demon of Our Own Design. This was written in advance of 2008. So it's uh, it'll be a nice look back. And then hopefully, as we discussed on the podcast, to give you a little bit of a roadmap to say, hey, this is what was happening before and this is what happened. And then your second book, which is what, when did your second book come out? Uh, the end of theory came out in 2017. And the end of theory, uh, are, are here and here. Okay. Well, pleasure having mm -hmm. you. I'll make sure all these links yeah. are available and I will make well, one sure. Thing also, by the way, is, uh, I write posts fairly frequently on LinkedIn. So, Oh, great. You can also uh, check, you know, if you like LinkedIn, I, I've become a major fan of, of LinkedIn. 
yep. so you know you can check things out there. Yep. So here is uh, Rick Bookstaber's LinkedIn, where you can follow him and all of his writing. And as I mentioned, this this is probably going to come out uh, about uh, 10, 10 days from now from our recording. Um, but there is an article that came out today. Uh, or yesterday, I should say, on Financial Times, a quick run through Silicon Valley's bank risk management snafus, and that's available on Financial Times with a quick Google. Or uh, is that available also on LinkedIn? You posted it there? Uh, it's posted. I don't know if I posted it yet in my LinkedIn, but I'll do that. Um, yeah. The problem with Financial Times and a lot of these others is their paywall. Yes. But I, I'll cheat and I'll put it out in a PDF. And unless somebody sh shoots me, you know, you can look at it that way. <laughs> Rick, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to talking okay. to you. Okay. Thank you. Thanks. We'll see you.